This is The Guardian. As tensions rise on the Ukrainian border, Boris Johnson seems to be spending a lot of his recess break consulting lawyers about how to get out of the Mets inquiry into Downing Street parties. I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. got uh, more battalion tactical groups actually being brought closer uh, to the border uh, with Ukraine, according to the intelligence that we're, we're seeing. So, The attention of world leaders remains fixed on the movements of more than 100,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Boris Johnson and Liz Truss are continuing to promise tough sanctions if Russia invades, but are memories of the Kabul airlift haunting the British response? At home, the Prime Minister is filling out a questionnaire about his memories of COVID rule-breaking parties in Downing Street. And those close to him seem confident he'll avoid a fine. But have the public already passed their verdict? One thing coming down the track which will cheer Tory MPs is a major document next week to lay out the end of all COVID measures, including ending free tests. Labour says it's wrong to do so, but Rishi Sunak wants to save those pennies. And given inflation in the UK has increased to the highest rate for three decades in January, will the cancellation of free lateral flow tests even make a dent? And we in the lobby say our final farewells as host of this podcast. We look back at a particularly interesting few years in UK politics. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. Parliament is in recess this week and world leaders are flying between Russia and Kiev and MPs are back in their constituencies hearing from voters about the Prime Minister's antics and the cost of living. And to get his thoughts, I spoke to The Guardian political correspondent, Aubrey Allegretti. Aubrey, it's lovely to have you on. So recess week is usually the kind of week where we'd see the Prime Minister maybe touring the country, doing lots of photo ops, perhaps trying to shore up some of those Tory MPs have been wavering by, you know, grand visits to their constituencies. But he had to cut short what was a sort of trip that was planned to be longer to head back on Tuesday um, to, to chair a COBRA meeting about Ukraine after this intelligence suggested that, that, that an invasion was imminent. That so far, as we speak, not materialised. We're seeing some early signs of de-escalations. But, you know, how much influence do you think the mishandling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan will have been in the forefront of Boris Johnson's of other cabinet ministers' minds as this week approached? I think the Foreign Office is certainly still feeling very institutionally scarred about how haphazardly the evacuation from Afghanistan was handled and also about how much the government's sort of ratings took a hit, particularly the Foreign Secretary at the time, Dominic Raab's. I've been speaking to FCDO sources over the last week or so who had complained that the same problems keep happening over and over again due to what they call departmental failures to address some of the long-standing issues, particularly around integrating IT systems. So you've got people who now work for the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office who joined from the Department for International Development 500 days ago, and yet their IT systems still aren't integrated, so they can't do things as easy as sending emails to one another because they're on different security systems or joining Teams calls together without having to be sort of manually added. So difficulties like that are still very much present. Obviously, we have a new Foreign Secretary in post in this trust, and she's been a little bit quicker off the mark to institute, I think, the gold, silver and bronze crisis command structure 
anticipating that they need to be ready for invasion, even if they think the, the threat of it is slightly subsiding. And Ben Wallace was, you know, one of the, the cabinet ministers who came out reasonably unscathed, apart from a, uh, you know, quite a very public spat with the, the NALZAD team over the animal ev- evacuations, uh, which continues to be a bit of a source of embarrassment. But he sort of made a play of coming back from holiday, didn't he? And how, how high is his star in government compared to, say, Liz Truss, who, who you had that, you know, you know, it was propaganda, sure, but reasonably humiliating visit to, to Moscow? Well, Ben Wallace's star is certainly very high in government. He is, as far as I know, one of the top people in the Conservative Home members' polls where they keep track of how Conservative members feel about cabinet ministers. He obviously was a very big supporter of Boris Johnson's during the 2019 leadership election. So he's also coming from a position of strength because he's not constantly being asked about would he like to be leader, whereas Liz Truss is and is almost sort of enjoying the play of whether she could take over. She's enjoying being one of the front runners there. But Ben Wallace can sort of slightly sit back and enjoy being able to do his job without that sort of interference. He said earlier today that he was very, very happy being Defence Secretary. It was his dream job. So he is clearly enjoying doing it. He did cut short his holiday, as you mentioned, and that was obviously a pointed reference to Dominic Raab still being on the beach when Kabul was falling to the Taliban. And Ben Wallace is also obviously been a little bit more interesting because he made this comment about there being a whiff of Munich in the air, which some people took to be a sort of pointed reference towards the appeasement policy of some European countries in the face of Nazism in the uh, 1930s. So he's obviously been very strong, trying to show that the UK is ready militarily, and also aware not just of the threat of an invasion, but the sort of surrounding threats, so things like a false flag operation, cyber attacks and things like that. The, the key sort of decision made this week as we stand on this potential precipice is that Johnson, unlike some other countries, including the US, is keeping the embassy open in Kiev, you know, a pretty important symbol. Who's that Who's that symbol for? What's it supposed to, to demonstrate? Well, Western leaders have not been completely united in their response to this Russian aggression. And Boris Johnson sought to sort of present himself as one of the leading figures trying to hold the coalition of Western countries together. So keeping the UK embassy open is quite clearly a message that he thinks that it's important that the UK doesn't retreat, that it maintains a sort of strong diplomatic presence in the country. That's partly a bit to keep support high amongst fellow NATO members, but also I'm sure will play well diplomatically, uh, domestically with voters who want to see that the UK isn't sort of kowtowing to Russia as they think that some other countries are. We've seen a, a, a really markedly dis- different response from Labour, from Keir Starmer, uh, you know, versus what we saw, which was, you know, some degree of equivocation um, over the Salisbury poisoning from from Jeremy Corbyn, which a lot of, you know, su- suggesting that uh, it should be sent back to Russia f- for testing, something that a lot of people around him felt was a mistake at the time. And Starmer's not only gone further in being sort of a pretty strong backer of, of, of UK Western action to protect Ukraine, but also, you know, went further than that and, and did a massive attack on Stop the War Coalition, um, chaired by, a deputy chaired, sorry, by his predecessor, um, Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, ultimately, one of the things about, I suppose, the whole Ukraine situation is there's not a huge amount of, of, of political debate around the issue. Pretty much, you can imagine pretty much anyone leading the Conservative Party, or even if Keir Starmer was in number 10, the response would be, would, would be the same. So, so I guess that 
that audience is is at home, isn't it, for Keir Starmer's message? Yes, one of Keir Starmer's sort of most foremost commitments has really been to try and reinvent itself in the wake of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, particularly given some of his concerns towards the party's attitude on defence and security. So Keir Starmer obviously wrote an article for The Guardian this week in which he made some quite pointed criticism of his predecessor by writing that Stop the War, of which Jeremy Corbyn is a sort of is a big personality, was naive and actively gave succour to authoritarian leaders who directly threatened democracies. And and he said that there was nothing wrong with providing practical assistance from NATO to Ukraine. So he headed to Brussels this week to go to the NATO headquarters along with his Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy. The message very much being we're firm and united in our support for NATO. So not so much trying to disagree with anything the government's doing yet, but ensure that everyone knows that Labour is now supporting military support defensively in Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression. And meanwhile, while we're in this kind of holding position on Ukraine, Boris Johnson is perhaps not as focused on it as he as he could be because he's spending his time with legal advisors hiring you know what we understand to be outside uh, lawyers for himself and for for his wife Carrie Johnson filling in this questionnaire from the Metropolitan Police to give his account of lockdown breaches what what do we know about what he's going to argue so what we believe Boris Johnson will say in his response to the Metropolitan Police's questionnaire is that he may have been at some of these parties we understand that he was at several 3 4 5 maybe 6 However, his defence is going to be that he was working and he was present at some of these things, but but not partaking in anything that constituted an, an illegal gathering, that he was working in number 10, the building in which he lives, even if there were events going on around him. It's not quite clear whether that defence will wash because it's not been sort of well publicised that people were allowed to make that excuse before lots of people were working from home throughout the pandemic, but that didn't mean that just because if they had parties in their own house that that somehow made them exempt from being fined. Also, Theresa May, Boris Johnson's predecessor, very pointedly suggested that she didn't think it would wash if the Prime Minister tried to claim that he didn't understand the rules because she said it was quite clear what they were and the government made huge efforts to go to to tell people to sacrifice their liberties and so it was hypocritical of him to suggest otherwise. It's sort of odd to me to to see these you know the way these excuses are being constructed the way legal arguments being constructed and quite often those kind of technicalities you know might work sometimes to get people off you know fine speeding tickets but ultimately if Johnson does find a loophole I think as you know, some people have put it, it's not like people are suddenly going to be cheering in the streets that the Prime Minister is exonerated. It, it, it does, does it, does it matter ultimately, you know, what the Met do in terms of public opinion? So in terms of public opinion, I mean, all the polls suggest that people have largely made up their minds about whether or not they think Boris Johnson broke the COVID laws or not. Obviously, what does matter a lot more is what the Met Police say, because if the Prime Minister's fined potentially £100, potentially more for going to some of these events, then that could be the trigger that leads to Conservative MPs putting more letters of no confidence in him. Some of those I've spoken to have said him being fined for breaking the law or being found to have misled Parliament, that's a red line. It's sudden death for them. They feel like it's a line that can't be crossed. And so if the Metropolitan Police deliver a fairly equivocal finding that he did break the law, then that will be when they move. And of course, once the Met Police investigation is over, then 
Sue Gray, whose report we've all been waiting on for months and months now, we might finally see the full findings there rather than the sort of five or six pages of some slightly waffly criticism about failures of leadership. We might see some much more unequivocal black and white evidence about wrongdoing. What do you think recess means for those Tory MPs who've been kind of ruminating on Boris Johnson as as the right you know leader for the party, as the right prime minister? There were obviously there's obviously been anger about lots of different things brewing, you know, including his language to, to Keir Starmer about Jimmy Savile, but on you know much broader issues affecting the whole country like tax rises, energy bills. Do you think going away for recess kind of helped Boris Johnson and the MPs can't get together and plot in the same way that they might have been doing you? They get away from this frenzied atmosphere or do actually they go back and talk to constituents and realise that people are, you know, still pretty angry? I think it is more the former. Boris Johnson and his allies were very much just working on getting to recess three weeks ago, at possibly the most dangerous point just before Christian Wakeford's defection to Labour. That was their aim, just get to recess. He's obviously carried out a mini reshuffle by promoting the person who helped run the shadow whipping operation, Chris Eaton-Harris, as the chief whip, and clearing out some of the more senior whips in a bid to sort of restore some confidence and discipline amongst his MPs, that's going to be a very, very, very tough job for them. But I suspect that the longer this drags on and without resolution, the more safe Boris Johnson is because people just get used to the idea of the Prime Minister being under investigation by the police. Even if there is a way for Boris Johnson through this crisis, there are, you know, there is just the huge cost of living pressures on the horizon, one that's you know, obviously concerning Tory MPs, obviously also, you know, starting to, to fill their inboxes. Today, we've had that the ONS saying that the rate of inflation has increased to 5.5% in January, up 0.1% from a month earlier. And, and, you know, prices rising in things like clothing, footwear, furniture, energy prices going up in April for many people, tax rises for many people from April. How much of that will start to be the dominant thought in, in, in Tory MPs' minds, the dominant thought in voters' minds? And, and, and is that a new danger zone for Boris Johnson? It absolutely is. And I mean, it's not very difficult to see why it's not terribly attractive for a fellow Conservative MP to mount a leadership challenge when all of these problems are really coming up in the next few months. It doesn't sound like a fantastic situation that you might want to inherit. So you can understand why some of them are actually quite happy to keep their powder dry. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, however, might be uncomfortable with the way the economy is going over the next year. He's obviously been riding high on the back of the very generous support that he's been offering for most people during the pandemic, particularly furlough. But he's going to have to make some much tougher decisions that are going to probably see his popularity fall. Conservative MPs certainly will start to feel the pinch of cost of living. It was obviously an argument that was centre stage, really, of the 2010 to 2015 government in the run up to the 2015 election, the cost of living crisis. And the question really is whether this bites a little bit more now. However, this idea that Rishi Sunak's handing out £200 loans to people that they're going to be repaying over the next five years does mean that this will continue to feel quite present in people's minds. And next week, we're we're going to see another sort of big moment for the Prime Minister when he does this living with COVID strategy, which will essentially be, we understand, to remove pretty much all re- remaining COVID restrictions, including things like ending mandatory isolation, even if you test positive for COVID, 
and ending any free testing for COVID. Some of these things are very popular with Tory MPs. Ending free testing is very popular with the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Do you think they'll go down as well with the public? Yes, very well with most Conservative MPs and will certainly give Boris Johnson a big boost coming back from recess. It does feel like we're coming out of this pandemic with a bit of a whimper. I suspect that he'll want to make as much hay as possible of pulling back all of these remaining laws actually a month early because it's not even yet the two-year anniversary of the first national lockdown. There is still very live discussions, as we understand it, going on within government about exactly what the deadline should be. The Treasury's view is very much sort of try and bring everything forward as much as possible because the earlier we can end testing, the more millions and billions we can save. After discussions earlier this week, it seems there was a bit of an impasse. I was told by one of those present that it was decided every department should simply refer back to Prime Minister's words last Wednesday until people have worked out what on earth to say. So the uh, the final strategy when it's announced on Wednesday could be thrown together quite hastily. Great. Aubrey, thanks ever so much for joining me today. Thank you. After the break, as we hand over the baton, the lobby team looks back at a truly mad few years in British politics. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent at The Guardian. Right, so given this is the last Politics Weekly hosted by us in the lobby, we thought it'd be good to reflect on what has been a pretty bonkers few years in UK politics. And who else to head down memory lane with than The Guardian's political editor, Heather Stewart, and our sketch writer, John Crace. So I think if we're going to look back over the the five or six years we've been uh, doing this podcast, I think we have to start with Brexit don't we? John, how do you remember that completely extraordinary campaign? I remember it as a complete kind of maelstrom, really. It was extraordinary, just sort of going around up and down the country. And it was the sort of it was sort of like politics on acid, really. I mean, just people were making the the sort of most extraordinary claims. And that was my first uh, ever encounter with Dominic Cummings was in a Treasury Select Committee. But Dominic just sort of went straight in there and said, I've got to be out of here by four, so you better hurry up. It was one of the Uh, greatest sketches of all time, that one of yours, where you said accuracy was for snake oil pussies. Snake oil pussies, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the thing is that that's pretty much what he did say, because his whole shtick was winning is more important than anything and that nothing else mattered. The other side, you had the Remainers who thought they were fantastically good at politics, didn't they? You know, they'd, they'd won that unexpected majority in 2015, George Osborne and David Cameron, and they thought they were totally brilliant. And, you know, I remember going to some, I think it was Stansted, going to wait in some hangar for what was supposed to be an incredibly exciting event. Oh, God, I was there too. George Osborne, Vince Cable and Ed Balls, you know, yeah. all, all telling us, standing alongside a plane for some reason, all <laughs> telling us what a total disaster Brexit would be. And, you know, the feeling was this was they were wheeling out the big guns and there was absolutely no way they could lose so it was it was kind of it was kind of fascinating when they did that, that was my first you know foray into politics reporting um just just newly sort of joining the team and not even having a lobby pass then and there were two kind of standout days that i remember on the campaign the first was a kind of quite mundane david cameron 
poster launch, which was completely derailed by what was happening in Westminster, which was that um, John Mann was chasing Ken Livingston <laughs> through the Parliament. <laughs> and, and Ken Livingston had locked himself in the inner cupboard um, with John Mann shouting outside, do you think Hitler was right or something? Which had just, which all the hacks at the poster launch were, were, were looking at and all the Tory spads were looking at as well um, and all the sketch writers who'd come to sketch David Cameron would t- felt they were, were in, the wrong place. in the wrong place. Yeah. And then off, off goes David Cameron, pops up and resigns on the morning after the result despite having told us all he would stay on whatever the result was. <laughs> and then we had just a brilliant Tory leadership contest, didn't we, which was just so enjoyable. You know, Boris Johnson's first go where, you know, he was in it for about five minutes and then gave this amazing launch event where, you know, that morning Michael Gove had said he wasn't going to support him and he was going to run instead and Boris gives this hilarious speech where he you know whiffles on and uses lots of classical references and then ends up saying actually it's you know I'm 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 not the man I must tell you my friends you who have waited faithfully for the punchline of this speech that having consulted colleagues and in view of the circumstances in Parliament I have concluded that person cannot be me. It was amazing some of that. I went to Andrea Leadsom's campaign launch which Aww. ended up being very successful. There was the uh, there was the rally for Leadsom uh, down the street where uh, people were um, I was actually also at Stephen Crabbe's leadership campaign launch. You did a um, joint leadership bid with um, Sajid Javid. I mean how these things have turned out is really quite extraordinary because he was sort of pitching Javid as his chancellor. Again, it all sort of faded into obscurity. But I think one of the things that's most memorable for me is that moment that Andrea Leadsom, who'd got down to the final two, had you know just decided to pull out of the race after an encounter with the Times' Rachel Sylvester, where she said, of course, as a mother, and implied that Theresa May couldn't understand the problems of the country. And then she just came out of a small house in Westminster. I'm not sure whose house it was, it was, and said that she was pulling out the race. And Theresa May was, was you know, about to do her second speech in her leadership campaign. So then in comes Theresa May. I have just been to Buckingham Palace, where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government. And I accepted. It's all going gloriously well. She thinks she's super popular. The polls seem to love her. And so then we get that 2017 general election campaign, don't we? I, I, I think I've, I've still got a, a mug that I nicked off Theresa May's campaign bus that says Theresa May, strong and stable leadership in the, in the national interest. That, that, that was another. I mean, that also was fun to cover, right? I, it was it was absolutely fantastic. And I remember being up in Halifax for her um, manifesto launch. And this is when she sort of announced the dementia tax at the same time. We are proposing the right funding model for social care. We will make sure nobody has to sell their family home to pay for care. We'll make sure there's an absolute limit on what people need to pay. Yeah, it was an amazing manifesto. I can remember the manifesto was on our seats as we arrived at that event and you sort of picked it up and it was this, it was all Nick Timothy's doing, wasn't it? But it was this very sort of dense, serious, rather philosophical document, you know, hard, hardly any pictures and, you know, not, not many whizzy pledges. And it, it was, um, they, were, they were obviously so convinced they were going to win that, you know, they didn't, didn't particularly yeah. feel the need to tempt anyone. I think that you could, you could again, it was one of those campaigns where you could kind of see it falling apart before your eyes. I was at the what became like the kind of iconic press conference of that campaign where it, Theresa May did her Nothing Has Changed. And the build up to that, it's sort of been forgotten, but it's, it, was, um, it was actually the launch of the Welsh Manifesto. Oh, yeah. And, um, 
And and it, the the buzz went around the room. There was a tweet from George Osborne that, that they were going to reverse this this uh, this dimension tax pledge, and then she did. She 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 put in some sort of qualifications around it. Did a sort of big U turn, and then everybody the entire she took questions from a lot of of reporters, and every question was about you know you turned to public pressure, and she kept saying that she hadn't, even though she just said she, she had, and then at one point. She had a go at me for calling it dementia tax, and then straight after that, she said to to the Telegraph's uh, reporter there, you know, this nothing has changed, nothing has changed, which just she just looked like she'd lost control of it. And in that same campaign, I went to see a, you know, a kind of Boris a Boris Johnson in event where he looked like you know reasonably smug, and there were there were huge kind of labour protests outside, something that I had not expected to see, and you could really feel a bit of momentum around, uh, you know, to, to kind of momentum, phrase. small M, large <laughs> around, M, yeah, you know that the idea that that suddenly it was actually not that certain. Yeah, that summer was really sort of peak Jeremy Corbyn, wasn't it? That was that was the summer he, you know, that that campaign he was addressing these huge audiences. I can remember going to see him at rallies where it would be pouring down with rain and thousands of people would turn up to see him and they wanted their photos taken with him and with their dog and their kids and you know and then that that was that was the summer that he went on the stage at Glastonbury wasn't it and everyone shouting oh Jeremy Corbyn my husband was on a stag do in York and on the dance floor in some small York club people started singing oh Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> and at that point we were like wow okay so something's really something definitely is happening in the country for sure I don't think I mean for me still the result of the election the so hung parliament still came as a massive shock because I mean, there was this sort of sense that Theresa's sort of poll ratings were plummeting, but but I don't think anyone anticipated her not getting a majority. And what we're saying is the Conservatives are the largest party. Note, they don't have an overall majority at this stage. 314 for the Conservatives. I can remember on election night, I was sketching from the ITV studios and... My one, my one abiding memory was when the exit poll came in and it said hung parliament and George Osborne was doing everything but punching the air with excitement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, think, I think he said in the aftermath, didn't he, that Theresa May was a dead woman walking, although in fact yeah, she continued yeah. to walk for about another two years, didn't she? I remember yeah. Dimbleby announcing it, and that's always stuck in my mind, because of how nervous they must have been when they announced that exit poll. He said, we're going to be hung, drawn and quartered if this is wrong. And, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't. I mean, it, it, and it wasn't wrong. And then they, they never are really wrong, are they? But but still, you know, it was like it was so extraordinary that people were clearly a bit nervous about writing it because because it was so unexpected. And that opened the way to a a, a, a really... I don't know, difficult, debilitating, divisive period, didn't it? Where nobody had a majority. You know, she did a deal with the DUP, but she never really had a confident majority. And there she was wrangling really painfully with her own party about Brexit. And Labour were wrangling amongst themselves about Brexit. And it was it was a really sort of uncomfortable and sort of difficult period, that two-year parliament, wasn't it? And John, of course, we had the, the, the launch of an entirely new political party in that period as well, didn't we? Uh, 
Change UK, you forgot, oh, you've forgotten. How have you oh, forgotten? Oh, God. Oh, God, I had completely forgotten. Yeah, well, that says a lot in itself, doesn't it? Oh, God. Lots of those MPs ended up joining the Liberal Democrats. Uh, yeah. I mean, some of them had left for very valid reasons. Luciana Berger had left the Labour Party ultimately because she was so uh, she was so upset about anti-Semitism and um, you know the abuse that she was receiving. Um, you know, others clearly just didn't agree with you know the politics of Jeremy Corbyn whatsoever. And 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 um, and yeah, but not, but it's extraordinary to think that none none of those people who were seen as pretty key political players, or at least builders, being are no none of them are in Parliament anymore. So Theresa May tries and fails, tries and fails and tries and fails to get her Brexit deal through, doesn't she? And Boris Johnson making more and more fuss initially in Cabinet and then on the backbenches. And eventually she decides she can't do it and step down. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. John, she was she was such so brilliant to sketch, wasn't she? Were you, as the Maybot, were you slightly disappointed when she when she uh, marched off? I was actually. I mean, because I mean, when she had taken over, I'd kind of I I'd kind of thought, oh God, she's going to be really dull. She's going to be kind of competent and technocratic, and yet there was something sort of mechanistic and. Uh, I, I can remember the moment I uh, called her the Maybot. She had gone to uh, India on some trade mission. I think it was to try and persuade the, the country that we were going to do great deal, trade deals post-Brexit. And she started mumbling absolute gibberish. She said, we're going to deliver on the things that we've promised to deliver on. <laughs> she did have she did have a, a tendency to have these sound bites that she would just repeat and repeat, which in which under interrogation just meant absolutely nothing. Brexit means Brexit. Brexit one of them, means wasn't Brexit. It? I remember being on a plane with her where she in answer to a question which was nothing about this at all. She said something like, um, you know, people always talk about hard or soft Brexit and what I want is a red, white and blue Brexit and repeated that several times through the through the sort of chat with reporters on the plane. It was sort of nothing about what anyone had asked her about. And then she repeated it again on broadcast clips, but was never quite able to say what a red, white and blue Brexit was. I mean, it, it was all just kind of garbage um, and, and was revealed to be so by by you know what what ended up being a deal which involved the necessary compromises. Yeah, she she out she goes. Then Tory party decide they can't possibly put up with those compromises. In comes Boris Johnson after not such an exciting leadership contest. I would say it's not, it didn't quite have the drama level drama levels did it. Um, a lot of candidates. A lot of candidates. Lot yeah, of Matt candidates. Hancock, of course, Mark Harper. Some things oh. we might see again, mightn't we? In the uh, Sajid Javid again. Sajid might, Javid. Might, yeah. yeah. Michael Gove had another go. Rory yeah. Stewart, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, Andrea I went to I went to Matt Hancock's launch and got a free iPhone charger, which didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, I remember. I mean, Han- Hancock's launch was incredibly critical of Boris. Um, yeah, it was. It was. You know, that I'm the kind of anti-Boris candidate. I mean, extraordinary. And then he went on to endorse him, as all of those people <laughs> who pitched themselves as the anti-Boris candidates, you know, did because they were so desperate for a job. And and it was only Jeremy Hunt who who kind of kind of posited that a hard Brexit, no deal Brexit, might not be a very good idea, and 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 ended up being offered a demotion and then walking from away from any role in, in Johnson's cabinet. 
Yeah, and then, so that so then we then we had yet more wrangling, didn't we, through the autumn prorogation of Parliament? That ex- extraordinary period. Labour conference gets stopped halfway through, and we all have to rush back to London after Baroness Hale says it, it was illegal for Boris Johnson to prorogue Parliament. And then you know after quite a lot more parliamentary wrangling, the details of which we understood at the time, but <laughs> <laughs> could barely could barely tell you now. I, I remember a Saturday sitting, Super Saturday, that very much wasn't Saturday. Oh, super God. wasn't Super yeah. for those of us who had to cover it. But, yeah, um, no, I remember that. And I remember having to sit in the Supreme Court for three days um, sketching the, uh, the Gina Miller stuff. The last day, my, I remember in the kind of fever of it, the last day I, before I went on maternity leave was, was, or the day before it at least, was, that, was when Boris Johnson had thrown all of those MPs out of the party. I mean, it was when Dominic Cummings was at his most nuclear. And I remember one of those former cabinet ministers who had been throw, thrown out of the party sort of telling us in the sort of casually in the coffee queue in Portcullis House that he'd gone in to sort of speak to the Prime Minister about it and you know with a couple of other colleagues and Dominic Cummings had said to him and this has been widely reported when are you people going to effing realise we're going to purge you from the party which was <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> they'd not which hadn't which had not made them soften their position it should be said uh, in the lead up to that point but it's the kind of it was such an extraordinary time that people would happily sort of tell you that kind of thing in the in the queues around it which is one of the reasons it's such a good place to work <laughs> <laughs> and then back we went onto the battle buses john i think you and i were both there on a day when Boris Johnson, for no apparent reason, drove a, drove a bulldozer through some polystyrene bricks, weren't we? That, that it was a very um, it was a camp, it was a very tightly controlled campaign that 2019 general election, wasn't it? And it was it was all these sort of you know photo opportunity moments that would make good footage for the news, but not very much sort of access to to politicians to actually ask them any actual questions. Yeah, well, I think Boris, off, I think for Heathrow. He promised that he was going to lie down in front of a bulldozer, didn't he? But for for that particular election, he happened to lie on top of a bulldozer. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, and he he seemed sort of decisive and determined, and he was going to you know take on all these these characters who'd been holding things up in Westminster and all of that. And Labour watching them through that campaign. You know, they, they, they'd they been so split by hand, how to ha- even Jeremy Corbyn's close team had been so divided over to how to handle the Brexit stuff. And so it just felt like the energy, that huge energy that had been there in 2017 just wasn't there. And, you you know, I remember going on Corbyn's battle bus to interview him and he was, you know, kind of slightly petulant and didn't feel like he was enjoying it very much <laughs> in the way that he had in 2017. And I remember, you know, desperately, it was one of those things where I had about 12 minutes with him, I think, on a journey you know, I went down all the way down to Bristol to get on the bus with him and I had less than 15 minutes to interview him and you're thinking, oh God, I've got to get out, splash out of this. And I remember saying to him, you know, is it is it hard to land punches on Boris Johnson? And he looked at me sort of slightly irritatedly and said, I'm not a boxer, which was just... <laughs> You know, not not tremendously helpful, but they they just didn't feel like their hearts were in it at all at that stage. And so, I mean, I think the result was worse than expected, but I don't think any of us would would have expected it to go any other way, would we? No, no, it did feel like it was, there was no energy in the Labour campaign. I think I was at the Labour rally in Brex uh, in Bristol because it was, it was sort of on a, was it the one on a green Yeah, he was extremely late for it. Yeah, that's right. He was extremely late. And it was a few people kind of hanging around, but, you know, nothing like the the mobs of 2017. 
yeah exactly the en- just the energy and the excitement just yeah. didn't feel as if it was really there and after that, when did when did COVID start to really drop? Because I I'm still on I'm still with a small baby at this point. And um, what when did COVID sort of start to drop on both of your radars? What was the time when it's you you started to take it seriously? When did we do our first pod on it? I can't remember. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, it would have been February at some point. It really felt as if it accelerated. It felt as if it came on incredibly quickly, and that you went from because they suddenly started holding those Downing Street press conferences, which was a sort of new thing for us, which we'd go along to. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for coming again. This morning, I chaired a meeting of the government's COBRA Emergency Committee on the Coronavirus Outbreak. In my mind, it's just so compressed between, you know, going along and being told the first case, the first death had happened in the UK from it. And then what felt like a very short amount of time was kind of less than a month you know, suddenly you're literally sitting there in a room and the Prime Minister's telling you that it's Friday and he's shutting all the pubs, you know, <laughs> telling the pubs to close this evening and not open again. And that that was, you know, some of those moments were just extraordinary. And and then, of course, you know, you get an embargoed press release come through on the 23rd that, that you know, that's going out at whatever it was, 8pm, that, that basically says, you know, don't go out of your house. I mean, it was, it was it, but it was extraordinary to, to work on because it was like the opposite of that long Brexit period where, you know, you were wrangling away at the same problem for a very very long time and not not very much seemed to change this was it, it, it just went at breakneck speed and it, and it seemed to just just sort of accelerate over a very very short period N- not easy to sketch john i guess not not much humor there no it wasn't i mean i can remember being aware of it when suddenly the uh, newspapers and uh, tv news was full of clips from italy uh, which was in chaos at the time and and we were still, you know, the UK was still operating entirely as normal. And I can remember an Italian journalist saying, it's going to be like this in the UK in two weeks time. And that was the moment I thought, oh, Christ, it's going to be really serious. I mean, there were moments of absurdity in the, I mean, I, I can remember going to one of Boris's, press conferences when he'd been surrounded, you know, at either side by Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. And they'd tried to ram home the public health message. And Boris said, oh, well, I've just been off meeting COVID patients and I've shaken their hands. I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody. And you kind of thought, well, there's our first super spreader. I mean, he got so so ill i mean that must have just been it's just surreal to 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 must have been so surreal to write about it it was extremely and i it it so happened i was ill at the same time i mean i i suspect looking at the timeline i I think i may well have caught it in one of those downing street press conferences it certainly came on a few days after the last in-person one but you know i it was very odd being ill at home, Andrew, but I obviously wasn't nearly as ill as the Prime Minister was, but being ill at home and sort of trying to report on the fact that the, the Prime Minister, who, you know, is who you normally write about, obviously very sort of critically, you know, it, it's it's a quite a moment where where his life appears to be in danger. I mean, it re- really gives you a, a sense of sort of the seriousness of the situation. And it was, I mean, as we sort of subsequently discovered, it was pretty scary inside number 10 at that point. Yeah, and, they, as well, and so many people in there had COVID themselves, you know, all the kind of star players that, you, that you've heard of or bought on, you know, seen on the press conferences all seem to have caught it around the same time. Yeah, and don't forget that Matt Hancock got it at the same time too. 
Um, because we, I mean, we should never forget his glorious contribution to public office as health secretary. Uh, <laughs> I think the only thing he'll ever be remembered for, poor man, is that is that uh, that video that's sort of seared onto all our memories, and the video even worse, yeah. <gasps> Yeah. <laughs> Although it has to be said, in terms of breaking lockdown rules, he's, he, you know, it, it appears he was—he wasn't the only one in government. You know, he's, he's no longer remembered as the sort of, you know, government's most famous lockdown rule breaker, is he? To be fair, no, he's the most stupid rule breaker because he actually was had enough um, self worth to resign. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas he should have just break clearly if, if Boris had been Boris, he'd have just brazened it out so it didn't happen. That was what Boris initially appeared to. Uh, advise Hancock to do right he he he. they were all saying oh the prime minister considers this matter to be closed even though we were all saying yeah. hang on how on earth can you have the man who advises us all on public health having been captured on video clearly not paying very much attention to public health it was it, you know but the, the prime minister's instinct was no it's all right it's all right old chap tough it out and Keir Starmer won the do you remember anything much about that Labour leadership contest and and him well what it was like for him to win it because it seemed obvious he was right but so, I mean, his first year was just, you could barely talk to him, see him. He couldn't go anywhere. He had to support the government the whole time. It must have not. been so hard. I mean, there, there were, so the early stages of the, because the leadership campaign went on for quite a while and the early stages of it were, you know, before lockdown. So, you know, I can remember going to a, a Rebecca Long Bailey rally in some sort of slightly trendy bar, you know, it was sort of shoulder to shoulder and a, you know, noisy room and lots of beer being consumed. And, you know, so the early stages of it was sort of normal, I suppose. And in fact, slightly gruelling because they scheduled in loads and loads and loads of debates, which, you know, <laughs> quite get hard to quite hard to report on after the sort of third or fourth one of them. But I, I did feel really sorry for him when he when he took over and he had to give his little acceptance speech from inside his house, which is, you know, really <laughs> not what he would have imagined. But he's been it's been hard for him to make his mark hasn't it i mean what's what's he like to sketch john initially he was quite tough because i mean as as jess said i mean his initial response was merely to sort of back up the government really um you know in their public health messages and to say you know we we're guided by the science and if uh if the scientists are telling the government that we need to lock down, then that's what we need to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he's become rather more perky and lively in the last sort of four or five months, really. And you've actually begun to, I, you know, whether he is the man to lead Labour to the next Labour government, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think it sort of depends on how badly the Tories fall apart, really. That's kind of the question, isn't it, as we as we prepare to hand over the reins of the of the podcast after five or six years. It, it is is you know, we're sort of gripped by this partygate story. That's felt like the heady days of the Brexit times, hasn't it? Where yes. things are so fractious, you know, MPs suddenly become really important because with a with an eighty seat majority actually the the, sounds terrible to say this, but the views of an individual MP become a lot less important in terms of the future of the country than they do if you don't have a majority at all. So therefore, they became, you know, every single MP was a massive power player in that in that time. And now in the Conservative Party as well, they suddenly have, a, it feels like, a real, you know, a real power. Um, 
And to watch that kind of happen again and with a whole set of new MPs as well has been so interesting. Yeah, and especially because we would have thought in 2019, you know, Boris Johnson comes in with this amazing majority and you, you would have thought this is going to be a really sort of, you know, dull parliament in which, you know, he's got all these MPs who feel that they owe their seats to him, who are going to be super loyal. And yet, you know, it's some of those new MPs in these these red wall seats that have been very vocal in criticising him and, you know, maybe feel they've been made promises that that haven't been kept or whatever. So it's it's a really interesting and a really sort of febrile period. And it's not just the party gate stuff, which could still bring him down as we as we speak. But it's it's also the increasingly kind of grim backdrop for them too, right? NHS waiting lists continue continuing to go up. The cost of living crisis, inflation at thirty year highs. I mean, it's it's um, it's 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 a much more difficult and rocky parliament for Boris Johnson than he would ever have imagined on that on that night in December twenty nineteen, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that you know that's once once you become a a, a government whose sole direction and purpose or what it seems like is to keep Boris Johnson as prime minister and everything else in Whitehall kind of grinds to a halt like these 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 huge crises that the government's facing on multiple fronts just don't get this that just don't get the attention that they deserve because the prime minister is having to spend you know kind of 19 out of the 24 hours in the day having individual meetings with his bag benches um which is not how government should function and, yeah, and, and evidently it, from what mps say promising them absolutely anything they ask for as far as we can tell yeah giving people positions you know but not being able to sack anyone so the government grows large and cumbersome when you have these new offices created just to have the appearance of doing something and you know I, I, you know as we as we sort of hand over the reins of the podcast it'll be really interesting to see how that ends up playing out and whether you know if it's not this and if it's not the metropolitan police and a small fixed penalty notice that ends up bringing this government down that there are so many other things that that could i mean it will be extraordinary to sort of watch boris johnson's you know his his story is such an extraordinary one isn't it from this sort of hubris and you know, if it is the the party rule breaking that does bring him down, it, it, there's something really ironic about that, isn't it? it, it this, this is his sort of uh, his calling card. This is what people love about him, that he's a maverick. He doesn't obey the rules. And, and yet, you know, somehow, if that's what brings him to an end, brings his political career to an end, it's, it's, it's you know, be, be fascinating to watch. Well, I yeah, think. I mean, you would have thought that breaking and being found guilty of the criminal offence of breaking the laws that you've, in fact, brought in, uh, should be enough to bring, you know, end a career of uh, most prime ministers. But, you know, Boris has survived so far. And and taking, I've, I've had a little fantasy that sort of Boris has, ends up promising so much to every uh, backbencher that there are no backbenchers left by the end because they're all in government. <laughs> Yeah, well, we can't wait to, to to observe how it how it goes on, and hopefully, people will keep reading what we're writing about it. Thanks, guys. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. And that is all from us. For anyone wanting to hear more from the wonderful John Crace, he is live in King's Place with our award-winning columnist Marina Hyde, looking back at the latest events in Westminster. And the talk will be on Monday, the seventh of March at eight pm. You can book tickets at gu.com slash Guardian Live. From next week, Guardian columnist John Harris will host Politics Weekly UK. He'll be joined by a cast of voices from up and down the country, as well as across the political spectrum to give their takes on the week's political news. So make sure to listen every Thursday from February the 24th. 
and Politics Weekly America will be getting its very own feed in a hugely consequential year for the Democrats, where the midterms could make or break Joe Biden's presidency. Jonathan Frieden will continue to invite experts on the show to help analyse the latest in US politics. And search for both on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to say a huge thank you to you, to the listeners who've sent me so many brilliant ideas, kind comments and jokes over the years um, that we've been doing this podcast. It's been such a pleasure to host so many interesting guests, break so many stories, have so many interesting discussions, whether it's been Brexit or uh, Tory leadership candidates, elections, uh, pandemics and, you know, just so much more in between scandals that seem so important and get forgotten and we and we roll on to the next one. And there'll be so many more to come, I'm sure, which I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to. But for now, I want to thank our guests this week, John Crace and Aubrey Allegretti, and of course, my co-hosts, Heather Stewart and Rowena Mason. The producer is Amelia Janssen and executive producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jessica Elgott. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.